Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Today, we are concluding our series on suffering by talking about an unfortunately universal experience of suffering. We're going to talk today about the suffering of betrayal and abuse. Now, I want to put up some definitions for you about what we're going to be talking about today. So, betrayal is the breaking of trust between two or more people that produces harm or detriment to someone with whom the trust was broken. That's what we're defining as betrayal. What we're defining as abuse is this. Abuse is the improper usage or treatment of a person to unfairly or improperly gain benefit. So uh, this is really challenging. This is actually probably the most challenging element of suffering that we've talked about so far. You see other things like sickness or sudden death, um, they're, they're outside of a person's control, right? They're outside of your control whether you get sick or whether someone in your context gets sick or, or dies. Um, that's just kind of a result of the, the general brokenness that is present in the world. As we talked about previously, the second suffering of killing, it can sometimes be attributed to maybe politicians or generals or, or, or an assignment from the military or the task at hand or self-defense where it, it becomes morally neutral. And what we see throughout the entirety of human history is that war is inevitable and killing is going to happen. But betrayal and abuse is different because it's someone choosing to hurt you. And it really makes it such a hard suffering to navigate because it could have been prevented if your abuser, if your betrayer chose it to stop. And, and really another aspect of this is that it's very personal. Most often betrayal and abuse is involved by someone that you know. And it involves the buildup of trust and then that trust being broken and ripped away. And it really seems like in these contexts forgiveness can seem elusive or even impossible. But as we will look at this, we see that Jesus faithfully withstood. Jesus faithfully forgave the deepest betrayal in all of human history. And we look to him as a model. We look to him as our guide. And he can truly give us, Jesus, following Jesus, can truly give us the space to both grieve and also the space to heal and forgive. So let's first begin to talk about this idea of the disintegration of betrayal, right? And so as we're walking through this series, we're looking how dis disintegration, suffering is a disintegration. It breaks us down. And then reintegration, which is what the gospel does, is it builds us back up into something new and different and stronger and more glorious as a result of being broken. But we see in general that suffering is a disintegration and different types of suffering break us down in different ways. And so what we see today is that betrayal or abuse which is a violation often caused by the intentional choice of someone loved or trusted, it leaves an indelible mark on our soul, which breaks down our identity. You see, our personhood and our identity as beloved image bearers, as people who should be able to make a choice, as people who should have a voice, that is attacked and broken down when we are abused or violated. And so as we 
as we explore this idea, one of the questions that comes to mind is, what about betrayal or abuse breaks us down and how do we begin to process this? Um, remember, betrayal is the breaking down of trust and, and what happens is that abuse then follows that betrayal. So betrayal is kind of the front runner towards abuse. People betray you and then abuse comes and follows after that. And what the reason why I want to take a few minutes and break down different types of abuse or betrayal, it might seem a little redundant or it might seem obvious, but I actually find that it's really helpful in the healing process to identify and categorize and codify the things that have happened to us. It actually helps our brains reorganize things and say, okay, this person abused me through um, a position of power, or this person abused me through a relationship, or this person abused me in certain ways. And, And it's not to try to encourage you to relive your suffering over and over again. But really what it's meant to do is to help you organize things in your brain so that you can begin to to see the suffering that you've experienced in an organized way and then begin to work your process of healing through that. So so again, this is why we're doing this. And I'm going to put a graphic on the screen here as we begin to talk about abuse. And the first type of abuse that we want to talk about is an abuse of position. There's certain people that have a specific role in your life that is used improperly. And I just kind of chose two different ones, marital and a proximity that relates to this. So some people have a, a specific role in your life that they abuse and use improperly. And the first one is as it relates to marital. You know, sometimes um, people can abuse a marriage and the trust that both is implied and assumed in a marriage to control, manipulate, or harm a spouse. So this could be someone that, that, that says, hey, because I gave you a ring, now you need to do these things. Hey, because now we've gotten married and moved in together, now we've got to do these things. Um, there's second, and this is kind of more related to, unfortunately, sexual abuse, although sexual abuse will come at every one of these junctures, is, is the, uh, having a specific role or in proximity to someone, right? So one way is having a marital connection, but another one is just having physical proximity to someone, either by being personally connected, familially connected, spiritually connected, or professionally connected. You have this proximity to someone to sexually benefit from them to their detriment. And so for, for some people, it might be personal. It could be a family friend or a neighbor that has a proximity to, that has had a proximity to you to abuse you. It could be familial. It could be a stepfather, an uncle. It could be a grandparent or a cousin. Um, it could be spiritual proximity, right? There could be someone that has a pastoral position in your life. Or it could be a pro- professional um, role that someone has, maybe as a boss, as a coworker, a CEO, or president, where there's an unbalanced power dynamic, but they're using their role, and they're using their role in proximity to you to take advantage of you. And all these kind of fall under the category of an abusive position. So another, another type of abuse, which is an abuse of power. So that's having specific tools at, your dis- at, at someone's disposal that are used improperly to harm you. So that could be professional um, abuse of power. That could be manipulating, what we say by this is manipulating authority structures. Uh, an authority structure, uh, uh, an organization could actually become a tool in the hands of an abuser or a betrayer to manipulate 
in order to coerce another to, for their own personal benefit or protection, right? So we see this especially with CEOs of companies that use the authority structure, that use an organization to come around them and protect them when they are doing things that are wrong, right? So that's, that's using a tool at their disposal. Next, um, I, I, I categorize this as confessional. There's a specific tool of confession. And a lot of times we open ourselves up to others in our life, to other friends, to family members, and confess things, confess struggles, confess certain, certain things that we're wrestling with, con- confess certain uh, addictive things that we're trying to work through. And that is actually a, a power that we're giving that other person. That's actually a, a uh, power that we're giving them over us and to trust with the secret, right? To trust with something that we don't want everybody to know about. And so an abuse of power could be um, using that confessional power, using that firsthand knowledge of sensitive information about another person for personal gain. And this can often be expressed through gossip or coercion. Another way it can have abuse of power, having a specific tools that are used improperly, is spiritual. Some people can use special, I've seen this unfortunately, where people use specialized training, specialized knowledge to manipulate someone into relational, financial, or sexual benefit, right? So there's abuse of position having a specific role um, that's used improperly. There's abuse of power having specific tools that are used improperly. And finally, and there's probably many others that we could say, but the final one is an abuse of relationships, having specific relationships that are used improperly. So again, going back into a professional environment, there could be specific relationships like, like uh, manipulating a mentor or mentoree relationship in order to gain power. Again, there's an imbalanced power dynamic, but it's more relational than it is um, related to a role or a tool. Another one is personal, where you can, where, where unfortunately I've seen this where some people use a friendship in a manipulative way to gain access to others. So someone is friends with someone in a certain social circle or a certain political circle or a certain professional circle. And then once they introduce you to their friends, you kind of toss them to the side and use them. That is a form of betrayal. And also there is pastoral um, relationships. So that's a spiritual relationship, and that doesn't have to be necessarily to from a pastor to someone as a part of their church, but in general, maybe someone as a counselor or someone as a, as a spiritual mentor or friend. They take on a role of a spiritual um, leader in your life, and they have, there's an implied trust, and then they use that to gain control or sexual benefit. And my friends, unfortunately, with this abuse, since the garden, this abuse has been happening. It's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And as I was considering all these different facets of abuse, abuse of position, power, or relationship, um, I was reading through Adam and Eve's encounter in the garden, and I actually found that Adam did all three of these things in this interaction. So look with me at Genesis 3, starting in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, this was after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and God said to them, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself, right? So Adam's feeling shame, he's fearful, he's hiding. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that, which I commanded you not to eat? Then listen to the words of Adam. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In that one sentence reply from Adam, he is actually abusing his 
position and power and relationship. So he's abusing his position. Adam had a role as husband to protect his wife, and he abdicated that role and blamed Eve for it. He says, well, she was the one that gave me the fruit. It wasn't, he kind of flipped the roles and, and kind of actually gave her a position that she didn't have and abdicated his own position to blame her. Next, it's an abuse of power. Adam was actually created first, and there's no record of God talking with Eve about the requirements, but there is a record of God talking with Adam. And so we see throughout the pattern of the scripture that that Adam had this unique role and responsibility and and a position of power. He actually had a tool at his disposal called, I was created first and God told me first what to do, and so I need to make sure that happens. And, and he heard directly from God about this, yet he used his power to try to pass off the blame. He used his power as representing his family. He was the first person to speak, and yet he was trying to, to be the first person to speak to turn God against Eve as if God was a human man. And finally, this is an abusive relationship. Adam was actually trying to manipulate his relationship with God by blaming God for giving him Eve. He said, well, this woman that you gave me, see how that's a subtle manipulation, that's a subtle abuse of his relationship with God, trying to manipulate God and say, well, you know, really, this, this is all your fault because you gave her to me, right? You see how Adam is abusing position, power, and relationship, and we are still feeling the reverberations, the effects of his brokenness to this day. You know, in, and, we, and even popular culture and even classic literature um, sees betrayal as just one of the most deepest, um, betray- one of the most hardest things to wrestle with. In Dante's poetic interpretation of hell, the severest punishment is treachery. It's in the, actually the ninth circle of hell. It's a frozen lake. And like Dante's vision, the ninth circle is divided into rings that increasingly have bad sections and the worst is at the center. And at the center of hell, And at the center of hell is the four worst betrayers in Dante's imagination, which was Satan, Brutus, and Cassius, who killed Julius Caesar, and Judas Iscariot. They see betrayal is the most despised, it's the most contemptible of sins. And it really, I think it causes the most harm of any other suffering that we have discussed because, again, it's completely voluntary and it's completely preventable by the abuser or the betrayer. So the question is, how does, uh, how does betrayal and abuse break us down? What it does is it connects with the deepest part of who we are. But especially sexual abuse and betrayal is the hardest because it attacks at the core of our identity and especially our identity as sexual beings. So um, as we've talked about much here at Redeeming Hope, our identity is two things. It's having an understanding of who we are and an understanding of who God is. And at the center of the uh, convergence of, of understanding who we are and who God is, that's our identity. And so we are made in the image of God. We are worthy of love and care, protection, and respect. And as being made in the image of God, this is relating to who we are, we, we have a choice. We are made to choose to care for creation. We were, we, were cre- we were created with the capacity to make choices, to make creative choices in which we fill the earth and subdue it. We multiply. We are given creative care and authority in the world in the perfection of the garden. And we were created with a voice 
And so in rape or abuse, manipulation, control, or other betrayals, we lose the ability to choose our fate. We're silenced. And in our silence and in that abuse that happens, we actually lose part of ourselves. Part of ourselves is broken. It's disintegrated. It's broken down. So that's how it breaks down our identity, who we are, but it also breaks down our identity in understanding who God is. Because how we are supposed to understand God is that God is loving and caring and he's our father. But in the midst of abuse and betrayal, it can be so incredibly difficult to see God as loving. If God loved me, why did this happen to me? If God truly cared about me, why did this person betray my trust and abuse me? And how in the world could God be a loving father and watch as these things are happening? You see, the loss of choice, the loss of voice, it tears us apart. And our personhood and our identity as a beloved image bearers, it's attacked when we're abused and violated. And see, betrayal and abuse is someone choosing to hurt you, to silence you, and to remove your choice. And again, as we mentioned before, it makes it such a hard suffering to navigate because it could have been prevented by the abuser or the betrayer stopping at any point in time, but they didn't. And it is caused, often caused by someone personal that you know, which makes it even worse. And it makes it even harder to walk the pathway of healing and forgiveness. But not only that, but also our response to betrayal can multiply our hurt. And so we can respond to betrayal in two different ways. We can either respond by hiding or by overworking. So first, how we can respond to betrayal is by hiding, either by voluntarily or involuntary having a lack of transparency. So sometimes, um, sometimes there is not a choice to be transparent, but rather your brain shuts down and disassociates to protect your sanity. There's certain sufferings that, that some of you might have gone through where your brain knows the limits of your sanity and your ability. And so your brain will literally shut down, disconnect your emotions, disconnect your memories and kind of file away that hurt and pain or abusive situation into a place that you don't actually have access to. So you can't be transparent about it because you just don't remember it. And your brain does it as a self-defense mechanism, and it's actually part of the fall that our brain has to be able to do that. But so sometimes it isn't a choice. But sometimes it is a choice. And instead of dealing with immense pain or betrayal, some will actually voluntarily choose to shut themselves down, their emotions down. And they'll say things like, I'm fine, we're fine, nothing happened. But what happens with, with these, whether this is a choice or not a choice, the result is the same. It often results in self-blame for the betrayal or abuse. You see, the enemy of God introduces this betrayal and abuse into your life. He then convinces you it's your fault and then to hide it. And then he multiplies your suffering by having you continually hide it. And then that actually draws other abusers and betrayers into your life too because they're drawn to that vulnerability. You see, your woundedness will express itself even in more subtle ways. And this is an understandable response for both the hiding and the overworking. I want to just speak grace to you right now. If this is you, if, if, if you've tr been trying to push away hurt or pain or abuse or betrayal, I want you to know that it's understandable. It's not going to help you in the long run, but it is understandable that this has been your response. And I don't want you to feel shame related to this. But what happens is, is that the hurt of your betrayal will fester like a wound. 
it will fester like a wound that's unhealed and it will cause more damage in your life. So what we find is that that hurt can, can, can push us inward towards isolation, self-harm, self-blame, or lashing out at others, or actually lashing out at ourselves, making ourselves the, the person responsible for the abuse. Now, that's one way. Another way is overworking, where we actually can deflect pain onto others. And sometimes this is what happens, like betrayal pushes us to reflect pain on everybody around us. So intimate relationships can become the battlegrounds where you wage war against your betrayer with those who love you. So it's kind of almost like you took a picture of the person who betrayed you or abused you, and you tape it to the person that you love, you tape it to their face, and then you just proverbially punch them over and over and over again. So it looks like you're attacking the abuser, but what you're really doing is attacking the people who love you and care about you. And so that's what happens sometimes. We can deflect pain and the people in the closest proximity to us become the battleground on how we try to work out that pain because we can't go back to our abuser and work it out with them. Sometimes, not only that, that's for individual pain, but then sometimes power structures or leadership structures that have participated in that hurt or abuse, they can become the enemy to work out this pain, right? Like, so if you got harmed or or abused or betrayed at a church context, then organized church becomes the problem, right? So then it's not that person that hurt you, it's the organized church that hurt you. And so then anytime you encounter a power structure, anytime you encounter a leadership structure or religious structure, you think that if I can solve this institutional problem, I will be okay and protect others from being hurt. And then they become the enemy instead of the real enemy, which is the evil and the brokenness in the world and the person who betrayed you. So what happens with this overwork is you're working out your anger with the abuser or betrayer, with everyone in authority or power or influence or, or that you are vulnerable with in your life. And my friends, this is a temporary relief. And again, even with this, it's an understandable response because you're feeling that anger and emotion, you're trying to express it, and unfortunately the people in your proximity get that. But what it will do to you is it will actually destroy intimacy. And it will then draw unhealthy people to you who like to fight in conflict, and it will actually create more conflict and harm in your life over the long haul. Activism really is just the Band-Aid over a bullet hole in your chest. And so, as we mentioned, the hurt can push us inward. The hurt can also push, push us outward towards expressions of anger, relational contention, blame shifting, and lashing out at others. My friends, these are unhealthy ways that we respond to suffering, betrayal, and abuse. However, the good news of Jesus gives us a better way to move forward. It actually gives us a message of hope even when we are betrayed. And I want to first begin by saying, if you have been betrayed, you are in good company. You are in the company of the likes of great men like Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, like David, who is known as a man after God's own heart, and like Jesus, who is God in the flesh himself. And my friends, I want you to know that if you've been betrayed or abused, it is not your fault. It is not your fault if you have been betrayed or abused. Look with me at whose company that you keep. First is Paul. 
Paul, who came to know who Jesus is, he started almost every church in the New Testament. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But he was betrayed by many in the course of his ministry. But there was one that I just wanted to highlight for you. And that's Colossians 4. There's a man named Demas. And he says, as he's writing these letters to his friends, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So he's saying, hey, there's this guy that's right here next to me, and he wants to send you greeting. And he says the same thing in Philemon. Um, uh, Epaphras sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So, so Paul is working along with people, and one of those people that is a partner with him, a close partner with him in ministry, to the point where in the same room as he's writing the inspired words of Scripture, and he's writing Demas into the Bible and saying he is wanting to send you encouragement. But look with me at 2 Timothy 4. He's writing to his friend Timothy. He says these words, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas got drawn away to a love of the world and left Paul alone in prison. Wasn't with him. Wasn't stable with him. Wasn't a faithful friend. He was betrayed. What we see is that not only was Paul betrayed, but then we see another man, a great man, David, was betrayed by his closest friends. Psalm 41 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And a couple weeks ago, we were working through every quarter in our Bible reading plan as a church. We worked through like Psalms, and we worked through Proverbs, we worked through an epistle, a, a New Testament short book, and then we worked through a narrative, a story-type book. And uh, in this past reading from this past quarter in Psalms, this stuck out to me, and I wanted to include it here, but this is David writing, and he says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide it from him, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Then look at how he feels. Look at how David feels. He says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But then look at these final words. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Now look with me here at this text. This is a great model for the Christian. See, David is radically acknowledging the reality of his betrayal. He says, my friend has betrayed me. And if it was an enemy, I could deal with it. But it was you. It was a sweet friend, a companion, an equal. And then he says, we used to take counsel together within God's house. We walked in the song. This was someone he went to temple with. This would be the equivalent of someone who is your closest friend in your church if you have a church home. The person that you are the closest with, that you would go to church with, that you would sit next to, that you would study the Bible with, that you were in a small group with, that you did life with, that you texted, that you called, that you learned about Jesus with, and then they betrayed you and stabbed the knife in your back. That's what happened with David. And then, not only that, but look at how David responds. David really wants this guy to walk alive into hell itself. That's what Sheol is. Sheol is hell. He says, I hope that he goes down to Sheol alive. I don't even want him to die. I want him to drop right into the burning pits of hell alive. That's how, how much David is angry. Evil is in their dwelling place. He'd live in evil and it resides in them. 
But the key is that who is David talking to here? He's talking to God. He's bringing his pain to God. And that's the difference between David and almost every other king and every other judge in the entire Bible. This is what made David a man after God's own heart. Not that he was a good man. He was actually quite bad in a lot of ways. Is that when he was suffering, when he was in pain, when he had failed, when he had sinned, he always ran to God. He always spoke to God his emotions. And he's speaking to God his emotions right now, which makes them not sin, but this is actually fostering relationship with God himself. But the key text here, the key twist at the end is what he says. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. He says that it's not about whether or not I get retribution. It's not about whether I see justice in this life. He says, my hope is in that I call to God and that God will save me. This is a brilliant, wonderful model for the Christian to deal with those who have betrayed you, hurt you, and abused you. It is okay to recognize it. It is okay to speak it to God. It is okay to wish harm on the person that hurt you, right? And he even says it right here, but he's saying it to God. He's not gossiping to other people. He's saying, this is what's truly in my heart. But at the end, he affirms his hope is in the Lord, not in retribution. David was betrayed by his closest friends. But finally, and we see the ultimate model of this is Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest disciples. Look with me in Matthew 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, walked with Jesus for years. And what's interesting to me is when I look forward at how Paul is talking about communion and how Jesus handled the Last Supper with his disciples, look with me at what he says, how he defines what that night is. He actually gives a title to that night. For I received the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The night of his betrayal, Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. He sold his friend out, betrayed him. That is actually the night of of Jesus's, of, of his arrest, the beginning of his passion. But Paul says the night of his betrayal. That is how much Judas's betrayal marked it. That it has forever marked that night as the night that Jesus was betrayed and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across 2,000 years of history have quoted those words at every single communion service on the night of his betrayal. But what did Jesus do? Jesus gave Judas communion. Jesus gave Judas a foot wash. He washed his feet. He gave him communion. How? How in the world could Jesus do that? How in the world could Jesus Give Judas communion and wash his feet, knowing what he was going to do. Why? Because Jesus knew the resolution to betrayal was coming. You see, Christ chose to enter into suffering and into the suffering of betrayal and model it for us. He is able to understand. He is able to grieve with us. He is able to comfort us in betrayal. Why? Because Jesus was betrayed. You see, at the cross of Jesus, he was ultimately betrayed. He gave up his life to heal us in our betrayal and give us a new pattern and a new way of living. 
Look with me at the words of Jesus on the cross in Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's three points I want to make about Jesus on the cross here and how that speaks to us and how we can maintain and find healing and grace with our identity in the words of Jesus on the cross. The first thing is that Jesus still sees that he is a son and that God is his father even on the cross. Jesus is suffering the ultimate sacrifice. He is engaging in the ultimate brokenness. He is becoming the embodiment of all of sin and guilt and shame for all of human history. And yet he still calls God his father. He doesn't doubt that God loves him. And he doesn't doubt that God is his father. And he still sees himself as a son, despite what he's going through. Second, Jesus is a compassionate mediator. He's able to pray on behalf of those who are murdering him, but he's also able to acknowledge their sin. He's saying they need forgiveness, so please forgive them, right? So he's actually making a point that these people are not doing the right thing. And so he is a compassionate mediator, but in that he's acknowledging their sin. Next, we see that Jesus, that they know not what they do. Jesus is operating out of renewed spiritual reality. He knows that they don't see the far-reaching repercussions of their sin. So Jesus is seeing things from, he's teaching us to see things from a different lens, that they don't know what they're doing. They don't see, they don't have the full picture. And another thing I want to note, his prayer did not change his situation. Look with me at the end of that verse. And they cast lots to divide his garments. They continued to revile him, to shame him. He continued to be suffered, to suffer the betrayal and abuse and death, even after he prayed these, this incredibly faithful prayer. So the question is, how do we find purpose in the midst of the suffering and betrayal and abuse? How can I move on? Well, a couple of things, especially looking at what Christ did on the cross. First is that you are beloved son or daughter of God. And your identity is not changed by your abuse. That's one of the ways that you can see the purpose in this is that your identity is secure. You can identify in Christ and what he's done for you, not in your circumstances. You have suffered betrayal, but you are not worthy of betrayal. This does not not diminish your worthiness as an image bearer of God. Another teachable thing for us is that you have a compassionate mediator who is present with you, and he's also present with your abuser too. Remember, this is hard to hear, but Jesus is the savior of the abused and the abuser. And that's hard to experience. But I want you to know that you can fully acknowledge, you can fully be honest about the sins that have been committed against you. Jesus is your defender. He is your mediator. He is your friend. So you can fully embrace what has happened to you and embrace it with honesty. Look at the other person as they need to know and you need to believe that what they did to you was wrong and that's okay. Finally, and again, looking at Jesus on the cross and how he dealt with this, is that you have access to a renewed spiritual reality to see God as ultimately good even in light of your betrayal and abuse. My friends, the call of God is to trust in God's character and in his goodness, not in your understanding of the situation. And you can trust in the redemptive power of God to heal you and redeem you. He can redeem even this. Why? 
Two reasons. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus can redeem you. There is no amount of betrayal that is beyond the redemptive power of Jesus in your life. And there is also no amount of betrayal that is beyond the transformative power of the Holy Spirit to change you. So Jesus, because of his resurrection, can, can redeem the circumstance. Like he can turn it for the good. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit can take this circumstance and transform you as Jesus is redeeming you. God is with us in the midst of betrayal and abuse because Jesus was betrayed and abandoned on the cross when he was abused. Look with me at Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, you are in a time of need if you have been abused or betrayed and you can find mercy, forgiveness, and grace as you follow Jesus. It's not immediate and it's hard fought, but my friends, it is possible and it is worth it. We can respond to our suffering out of our view of God's character, we can truly rediscover our identity in the midst of it. You see, we can see who we are. We can see who we are as loved, even when the betrayal or abuse hits us and seeks to destroy us. Not only that, but we can see who God is, right? Our identity is at the crux of who we are and who God is. We are loved, but we also can rediscover our identity of who God is, seeing that he's loving, that God actually grieves the brokenness in the world. And he showed his love for us by dying for us. He proved that it was him by Jesus' resurrection for us. And one day he will resolve all of this brokenness. But in the midst of this, God is grieving with you. This is good news. That God is present with you. He wants to heal you and restore you and make it more beautiful because of this brokenness. Now, this leads us to our final and brief point, which is our response to betrayal. How do we respond to this? So I want to put this on the screen for you as some graphics on how we can respond to betrayal or abuse. And just some tips, some, some helpful hints, and maybe some practical next steps for you, regardless of where you might be on your healing journey. First is to reject self-condemnation and self-blame or reject the overworking and blame shifting. So do, just reject those things. Don't see yourself as worthy of blame, but don't see others as worthy of blame either. Put the square blame on sin and brokenness and then the person that abused you. Next is embrace the reality of your pain and acknowledge that what happened to you was wrong. Like what happened to you is wrong and what that person did to you was wrong. Express it. Talk about it in safe and healthy ways and fully acknowledge and don't excuse it. Next, come to Jesus in true faith. This is hearing and believing and obeying the gospel. Receive his grace and forgiveness for your own brokenness, right? So this is an invitation to come to God in your own brokenness to receive his grace. You hear this message that Jesus has saved you, that Jesus was betrayed for you. You believe that it's true for you, and then you obey by making Jesus Lord over your life. Next, join a safe, trustworthy community to share this brokenness with others and begin to heal. So you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You have to come into community in order to heal. And that seems counterintuitive because community is probably where you were hurt. But God, again, is in the process of redemption. God is in the process of redeeming those things. So 
you have to have a family of faith, to join a family of faith in order to receive true healing. Next, seek counseling and specialists to bring gospel clarity and one-on-one help. Sometimes you need a general practitioner. That's like a pastor, right? But sometimes you need a specialist. Sometimes you need someone that can truly help navigate you through all the side-winding caverns of suffering that you've been through and to help see the gospel in it. And by the way, uh, Redeeming Hope can help you get connected with a counselor. Finally, long for forgiveness, but forgiveness does not equal restoration. My friends, so often the church has been unhelpful because they say if you forgive someone, then you must welcome them back into your life with open arms and go to church with them and worship with them. And um, Oh, they, they ask for forgiveness, so everything should be fine and, and dandy. And that's not the case. Like you, you can long for forgiveness and let that be a process that extends over a period of time. You don't have to immediately forgive someone. It's hard. You need to work through that. It needs to be genuine. And forgiveness does not mean a restoration of relationship. So you can truly forgive someone and not ever see them again and not want to see them again because it might not be healthy for you to see them again, right? So I just want to be really clear that you can forgive someone, be operating in the gospel, be operating in obedience, and not be in relationship with that person in, in, in on this side of heaven. And that is okay. My friends, as we end our time and end and conclude the series, I want to remind us that there is no resurrection without death. That in the midst of Jesus' suffering, Jesus' murder, his betrayal, deep betrayal, he has accomplished the central and defining work of all of human history by reuniting us back with his Father. That's what he did. And so through Jesus' suffering, there has been a redemption. Through Jesus' pain and betrayal, there has been salvation for all people. So in the midst of our weaknesses, because Jesus is true, in the midst of our weaknesses, our sufferings, even in the betrayal from someone that we have trusted, that can be a launching pad for resurrection, just like Jesus' death was a launching pad for resurrection. Our death can mirror Christ's death. And our death to ourself, our death to our desire of retribution, our walk and journey in healing can set us up to be transformed just like Jesus was in his resurrection. If Jesus' betrayal and death can be redeemed, ours can be redeemed too. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, as we navigate through betrayal and abuse and suffering, As we continue to process this, Lord, I pray that you would give us an incredible amount of grace to not hide and say, I'm fine, to not overwork and just try to battle out our abuse in other relationships in our life. But Jesus, help us turn to you. See you on the cross who was ultimately betrayed and abandoned so that we don't ever have to be abandoned when we are betrayed. Help us see that you are present with us. You love us. You care about us. You are with us in the midst of this, and you are changing us to be more like you. Help us walk the path of healing. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.